Hello, and welcome to Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're going to get a uniquely insider perspective of the U.S. Senate. Our guest is Senator Mo Cowan, who was appointed to represent Massachusetts by Governor Deval Patrick in February of 2013, after his predecessor, John Kerry, resigned to become U.S. Secretary of State. Cowan served for fewer than six months before Massachusetts held an election to find his successor. He's now spending a semester as a fellow at the Institute of Politics. Senator Cowan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. Happy to be here. So what were your first thoughts? The governor approaches you and says, I'd like you to fill this seat. What were you thinking? (laughs) Well, when the governor first indicated that I might be among the people he was going to consider for this interim appointment, I was still serving in his uh, in his office as uh, a senior advisor. Actually, I might have even been chief of staff at the time. Still, um, the sequencing of things. But when he first mentioned it, I actually advised him not to appoint me, Matt. Uh, I advised him that I thought perhaps it would not be in his political interest to uh, appoint me a staffer to this role. I was still in the mindset of a staffer, thinking what was best it was in the best interest of the principal. Um, but he, as was not uh, was often the case, he didn't always do what I thought he should do, and so he told me he was going to consider me nonetheless. So I recused myself from the process to select the interim appointee, and so there were a period of weeks where I was sort of in the dark about uh, what the process was or who was being considered and vetted, and I was had plenty of other things to do. But on, uh, I think it might have been on January 29th, uh, while I was working at home, uh, my kids were out of school that day for some reason, the governor called and surrounded in his office by some advisors, indicated that I was his choice. So, I mean, what does one think when you get a call saying that you're about to go to the United States Senate? Uh, It's surreal. It's surreal, to say the least. Now, you hadn't had any experience as an elected official in any real capacity before. Now, did you have any, you know, hopes and dreams for the future to possibly do that? I can honestly say, Matt, I did not grow up in uh, rural North Carolina where I'm from thinking that I was going to or dreaming of being in the United States Senate or Congress at all. Representing so, Massachusetts. And representing that's... Massachusetts of all things. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and I've never held elected office. It was not part of my aspirational desires. Uh, I was in public service. I enjoyed working for the governor, being a member of his key staff. It was great fun. I love public service, but I always thought of myself as a behind-the-scenes person as opposed to being out front. So having never held elected office, I would suggest, though, if one wants to go to, to be in Congress, it's the best way to do it, get appointed by a governor. Now, were you a part of, this was not the first time this had happened in Massachusetts, a few years earlier, um, the appointment of Paul Kirk to serve in uh, Ted Kennedy's seat after that is correct. Senator uh, passed away. Were you a part of that? What was that process like? Well, I imagine the processes were very similar. I was involved the first time that led to the appointment of Paul Kirk. While I was not, in fact, working for the governor at the time, I was uh, advising he he and his team uh, as sort of an outsider, if you will, on that selection process, helping vet candidates. So I was familiar with the process and certainly uh, understood what led to Paul's appointment. And Paul served with distinction and as some of your listeners may not know, Paul Kirk, aside from being a distinguished senator, also was a distinguished public servant before that, having worked alongside Senator Kennedy many years. And also, uh, I believe he might have headed up the DNC for a while and was a distinguished lawyer and advisor here in, in, in Boston. So I was familiar with the process. 
Again, I assume the process was similar because I recused myself the second time mm-hmm. around. Um, but I, because of the process with Paul, I had a sense when the governor said he was going to appoint me, sort of what was to follow and, and the circumstances uh, that would then, you know, lead to my time in D.C. So the trick for both of those appointments was this idea that whoever was appointed would not pursue the seat after, you know, in the election to come and and even afterwards. Uh why, what was the thinking behind that? I mean, wouldn't it make sense to just nominate your uh, party's <laughs> best chance at, at winning? I guess that's one school of thought. The, the, <laughs> the law here in Massachusetts says the governor can appoint an interim appointee until the special election. There's nothing uh, in the law that says that interim appointee cannot run for the uh, now open seat. But both times, Governor Patrick made clear his desire to have someone who would focus on the service during that interim period as opposed to campaigning. And I agree with him. It's very diff- it would have been incredibly difficult to you know, be interim senator for five and a half, six months and having to focus as much time back here in Massachusetts campaigning as one needed to focus on the work itself in D.C. And above all else, I just wasn't interested in running for the office. I was interested in the service. And I believe Paul felt the same way. So... You get to D.C., um, you're a senator, you know that your your position's only going to last about six months. S- the Senate is, is well known for having an arcane uh, uh, system of rules, and, um, and it's very heavily based on seniority. Did you feel like you were able to get things done, did, did you, or did you feel kind of mired by the time you first got there? Well, it's not called the world's most deliberative body for nothing, Matt. Uh, <laughs> Listen, you know, things in the Senate move at a certain pace. Uh, And frankly, it was a slower pace than I was accustomed to coming from the executive branch here in state government. Um, But, you know, I was not concerned in going to D.C. I wasn't worried about the substantive issues and the ability to engage. Frankly, I felt the issues were going to be very much the same thing I was dealing with back here in Massachusetts from the state side, just looking at it from a different lens. What if to the extent I was concerned about anything, it was uh, sort of the nature and the and the business practices of the Senate, uh, which is its own unique place. That's one of the reasons I actually asked John Kerry's staff to stay on with me and serve with me for my interim service, and for the most part they did. And it was incredibly helpful in helping me understand the rules and the procedures and the personalities and relationships in the Senate that I think enabled me to be uh, at least hopefully in the eyes of the people back here in Massachusetts, more effective than the typical interim senator would be. Uh, the rules are, yes, they're, they've been established over time. It's a body where seniority does matter. And in fact, I was number 100 in a body of 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, because I had such a senior staff and because I spent a lot of time in that six months forging relationships, I felt I had the chance to be effective on some significant issues for folks back here. When it comes to the rules, I always tell this uh, anecdote, joke, if you will, Matt, that if you go to the Senate chamber, there are 100 desks. They look virtually the same, and there are 100 drawers in each of those, or collectively among those 100 desks. And in each of those drawers, there are two bound volumes. Every senator has the same bound volumes, and they're beautifully bound with your name inscribed on them. One says Senate uh, procedures, and I think the other says something Senate rules or something to the effect. And my joke is that if you look at those volumes from any desk, regardless of how long that senator has been there, they're all virtually in the same pristine condition. 
uh, because the reality is most of the rules that matter on a day-to-day basis and the operation and the governance and the legislation, the legislating in the Senate aren't necessarily written down. I'm sure they're somewhere in those books, but they're, they've come to be understood and passed on and executed uh, uh, over time institutionally word of mouth, mm-hmm. which again was the value of having John's senior staff because they could help me understand in real time uh, the ways and norms of the Senate, um, whereas I think the typical freshman senator, much less an interim senator, would have to take some time to understand those things. Now, a lot of people uh, think that a role like this is one principally of just continuing things like constituent services um, for the senator that is left. Um, Did you go in with any idea as to things you wanted to accomplish beyond just kind of staying the course until the new senator, elected senator, was on his way? Yeah, there, there was no Mo doctrine or Mo agenda uh, when I went down, Matt. Um, first of all, continuing constituent services in a transition like that is incredibly important, um, and it's not to be dismini- diminished. Again, that was another reason I wanted to keep on John's staff. They knew the issues. They knew the constituents. And it was important to me. It was important to the governor. I think it should have been important to all of us that even during that transition, the good people here in the Commonwealth could feel and trust that the work of their senators were, would continue apace and there'd be no disruption. And uh, I'm proud to say that that happened uh, for the most part. You know, I had a few issues in mind that I went down there that, again, these are the same issues I was working on back here in Massachusetts, obviously some of the economic challenges we face. I was particularly interested in issues, uh, economic challenges for our fishing industry here in the Massachusetts. So, you know, you go down, you want to work on those issues. But, you know, it's an interim senator, you know, you should you make a name for yourself by not making a name for yourself. Uh, you keep the work going. You keep the issues. You keep you keep the focus on the issues. And, you know, you want, at the end of your interim service, whatever that may be, you hope that your constituents felt like during that period there was no diminution in services or, or, or no distractions from the work itself. And I feel like felt like we had a we did we did that fairly well. Did you feel like when you were voting, you had to, did you feel any kind of pressure that you had to be voting what John Kerry might be voting? <laughs> or or did you feel very uh, free to, to express your own, you know, your own views? Not that they necessarily differ that much <laughs> with, you know, uh, your party member. That's true. I mean, John and I did, did not consult on votes, uh, <laughs> but I had a good sense of how John probably would address or approach an issue, again, because I was working mm-hmm. with his staff. But listen, at the end of the day, I was a senator, I was the principal, and it was up to me to vote uh, in the manner I thought was consistent with what the people of Massachusetts would have wanted, including those who voted for John Kerry. Um, But at the end of the day, you also have to vote with your conscience and use your best judgment. I, for the most part, I think probably on most significant issues or most issues generally, um, Secretary Kerry and I would have would have been in the same place. Um, uh, And I have a sense of that because, again, I was working with his staff. But at the end of the day, it was my vote, and I had to vote uh, in the manner I thought most appropriate, most consistent with the views and values of the people back here in Massachusetts and with my own value system, and I, I feel comfortable with my votes. You know, there's also, you got you know, you didn't ask the question, but you also have to, there's the party element, mm-hmm. right? There's probably more pressure than anything to vote with the party. 
Um, and obviously, we have two Democratic senators here in Massachusetts. Um, and so, and John was a Democratic senator, and so you were obviously, and I was a member of the Democratic caucus, so you're mindful of the party's interests. Uh, but you have to balance those interests even with the interests of your constituents and the folks back home. More often than not, those were aligned. Uh, but where they weren't, you know, it, I, in my view, it's okay to vote uh, in the manner that you think your constituents uh, would want you to vote. You came from obviously a classically democratic state, and uh, obviously there are two democratic senators. There uh, are now. <laughs> well, there are, there were at the time as well. That's true. Uh, Senator Warren had been uh, had been elected and and brought into office. Could you just talk about the? I guess bipartisan nature, or I, should I even say bipartisan? Is that even a word that they use there? Uh, you go in, you're with the Democratic caucus. Presumably, you've you know followed what you know uh, John Kerry's staff has laid out there for you. Did you get any ovations from the other side? Did did people reach out to you? Did you you know get to discuss issues with them or? Well, it's a great question, um, and it's an important one because I think there's a – unfortunately, given what most people see or understand or believe about our government these days, that it's an incredibly partisan and irreparably partisan uh, environment. And make no mistake about it, it is it is overly partisan. It's more partisan than it needs to be. Use the word bipartisan. I would love to see our government – our governmental actors behave in a nonpartisan fashion and focus – on the issues that are good for the all of the country. That said, I will tell you, and this often surprises people, particularly folks here in the Commonwealth, that I was warmly welcomed by everyone in the body, uh, all the members, Republican, Democrat, and Independent, of which there are two alike, and they all wished me well when I arrived. Many of them were there when I was sworn in. As a matter of fact, one of the first people to greet me after I'd been sworn in by the Vice President and signed my name in the book I wonder what becomes of that book, but was uh, another freshman senator, another appointee, Tim Scott from South Carolina, uh, a Republican appointed by his governor, Nikki Haley, and Tim and I, both African-Americans. It was the first time two African-Americans were serving in the Senate at the same time. But even though probably uh, it's easy to guess that there are many, many things Tim and I don't agree on, um, he came over, introduced himself, and immediately said, I love to get to know you to see if there are things we can find some common ground to work together on. And frankly, I had that conversation or heard that sentiment from a number of my colleagues from across the aisle. Um, and that actually gives me some hope, Matt, that what we have come to accept, unfortunately, as the norm, um, remains an aberration and that we can get back to a form of government or a Congress where people come together and certainly have partisans or, or party interests but are willing at the end of the day um, to come together and compromise and collaborate and work for the common good, as opposed to engaging in this constant conflict um, that you know fuels the partisan interests and drives us apart. Uh, we've got to find a way to come together. My experience suggests that the opportunity is there. And were you able to actually come together on something substantive in, in legislation or anything like that? Well, again, remember, it's the Senate. <laughs> so, okay. uh, you know, we, we didn't get much done while I was there, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I, I had honest and earnest conversations with a number of my Republican colleagues about ideas, legislative uh, concepts, et cetera, that I believe, you know, had I stayed longer and we'd stayed the course, we could have, you know, done some, done some things in a bipartisan fashion. One, for example, Tim, Scott, and I 
uh, we talked a lot about sort of educational reform and, and the need to focus more time, attention, care, and frankly resources uh, into our public school system and how we teach our young people in our public schools, both being products of a public school system in the South. So, you know, I had every belief and hope that if I were still around, Tim and I could be working together and finding some common ground on some things. We wouldn't agree on everything, that's for sure. But, you know, I same time, you know, I was talking to Lindsey Graham about uh, foreign affairs issues and uh, talking to engage an interesting debate between with Republicans and Democrats and independents about environmental issues, you know, and uh, I th hope people will be encouraged to know. And I'm here to tell them that not everyone in D.C., not everyone in Congress, certainly not everyone in the Senate thinks or acts on a purely, you know, ideological um, agenda. And that there are folks who say, listen, I respect the fact that the other side has different ideas, and some of those ideas are worthy of significant consideration and, frankly, perhaps even implementation. As Governor Patrick is fond of saying, you know, as a Democrat, he accepts that Democrats don't have a monopoly on all the good ideas, nor do the Republicans, um, nor do the independents, for that matter. Uh, the way Congress is intended to work is that all those people come together and the best ideas are brought forward, debated, and then you know, those that survive can then be uh, acted upon and implemented for the greater good. Um, there's still hope for that, Matt. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time for a lesson on bow tie tying. <laughs> um, but uh, I want to thank you so much for being on PolicyCast. It was great having you. Thank you for having me. And uh, if anyone wants to know how to tie a bow tie, <laughs> go to the IOP website. I actually did a video. It's pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. Go to the iop.harvard.edu, I think it is. Anyways, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Policycast.